Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Lieutenant General Mike Dana, thank you so much for joining us today on Tesseract Podcast. We really appreciate it. Hey, Matt, it's great to be here. Love your library. Oh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I know you're, uh, you're a huge reader. Um, I will never forget uh, when I met you at, at DCA. And, and, and I remember being so impressed because um, you had no idea I was a reader. And within the first five minutes, within the first, not even five minutes, um, you, you asked me, what are you reading right now? Like, what's the best book you're reading right now? And, uh, and then you said, hey, these are the top three books that I recommend. And I actually, actually have them sitting right, well, two of them here. I have it uh, in oh, the store. Oh, very good. Uh, and then how to think more effectively. Uh, what well, else you read? I'll turn the question around. What else you reading right now? Oh, I uh, I'm reading Devotion. Um, oh, good, yeah. Uh, and I, that's been on my list for a long time. I'm big Adam Mako's fan. I think he's a great author. Yeah. Um, and I want to read the book before I watch the movie. Um, because the movie just recently came out. Yes. Yeah. Uh, great. And then, um, uh, yeah, that's uh, and I recently finished. Oh, uh, um, the Code War. Uh, on oh, yeah, on cyber yeah. conflict. So I'm I'm trying to invest a lot of time into cyber war. Good picks. And then your with your grandfather being a Korean War veteran. I mean, devotion. You'll love that. The, the movie's great because I'm part of the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, and Fred Smith, you know, who was a Vietnam combat veteran Marine. Uh, you know, he he helped you know put that movie together, and I've heard it's absolutely fantastic. I've awesome. seen the preview; it looks really motivating. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, and it was just it was resonating with me as well with devotion because um, you know they're providing casts in in uh, in the chosen reservoir, right? So yeah, uh, it's a and with the anniversary of the battle, um, you know, now, right? Uh, I think it's uh, it's timely. And we talked this before, but I just think, you know, for the audience, that if you really want a, a fantastic case study in the operational art, is looking at, you know, General O.P. Smith and the actions that he took to, you know, operationally and logistically prepare for that fight. Because he knew there was a possibility that they would get overextended in that terrain and with the weather and the number of Chinese and, the, you know, the threat envelope. So I just think that the way he orchestrated that battle is really, kind of, to me, is a template for the future. And I don't think, I mean, people recognize what a great battle that was in terms of, you know, our proficiency and uh, the Marine Corps proficiency combined arms on the battlefield. But I mean, he brought it to a new level, you know, mm -hmm. in my opinion. The, the other thing with O.P. Smith is you really did appreciate logistics. I don't want to sound like the typical logistics guy that, hey, no, you know, logistics doesn't get its due. Hey, I understand where we fit in, you know, but we provide the foundation, kind of the, we get the chessboard, the pieces set and then support so the chess piece, uh, pieces can move, excuse me. But I, would, but I would just say that logistics is like oxygen, right? Because everybody every day is, you know, it's just, this breathing thing is pretty good. But then when you don't have it, you know, ah, not good. So mm -hmm. it's important, you know, and again, in, in terms of the operational art planning is, you know, it's one of the war fighting functions, but it's one that, you know, really needs a lot of attention so that you can 
action, you know, action what you're trying to do, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So uh, why don't you enlighten the audience on your expertise in, in war fighting and logistics, you know, talking about your background, uh, yes. you know, with your, you were in the Marine Corps for 37 years, right? 37. Yeah. I, I, I joke with the people that I work with. I'm the senior citizen on these various companies that I work with. So <laughs> that's good. But I did do 37 years. I'm from upstate New York. I got commissioned in 82. The reason I won the Marine Corps is I had an uncle that was a Marine, uh, Roy Namor, Kalajan, Peleliu. And he was my favorite uncle. I mean, I had six uncles in World War II, but he was absolutely the funniest. And, uh, and there was nothing funny about his experience, but he just, he was just a great role model. And uh, I was fortunate enough. You know, my first couple of years in the Marine Corps, I was an armor officer, M60A1 tanks. They're museums now, by the way. Uh, but I was I was raised by the Vietnam generation, had the absolute utmost respect, you know, for the staff NCOs and officers that, you know, put up with my mistakes and the things that I didn't do correctly when I was a young officer. But literally my first three platoon sergeants, my first two company commanders were all Vietnam veterans. Uh, battalion commander was a Silver Star recipient. I mean, it just, it was just an amazing experience to be around, you know, men like that, that had really fought, you know, tough battles in Vietnam and passed that expertise on. So I, I moved from uh, tanks to logistics, did that for 32 years of my career, uh, deployed 10 times. Uh, and it really, you know, my, my wife didn't like that, but I really enjoyed it. And uh, <laughs> still married, by the way, same wife, 32 years. Uh, but then after, you know, working logistics, I think really the key jobs that I re remember most fondly besides, you know, command uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq was being the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, J-5, uh, you know, strategy and policy. Uh, probably 60% of my time in that job focused on China and, uh, you know, the, the challenges that that presents in that theater. But that was just a really great job. And I, I'm just not saying that's because you're Air Force. I was surrounded by talent. I mean, when I walked in the room, I was definitely not the smartest guy. I mean, I was surrounded by just brilliant young officers that, you know, carried the day. But that was just a fascinating theater to, to really dig into. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be moved to Washington, D.C. and become the head of logistics for the Marine Corps for three years and the director of the Marine Corps staff. I see the big things that the team did, it just did a fantastic job when I was head of installation logistics is we had an initiative called NextLog, Next Generation Logistics that did its best to anticipate what a future conflict would look like and how we would logistically support that. Uh, and we, we put out, uh, you know, different publications, a hybrid logistics brochure is probably the one that I am most proud of that the team put together. I mean, I gave minimal guidance and they ran with it. And in fact, uh, Rich Hicks, now no longer with the Marine Corps, but, you know, this is a young former corporal, you know, thinking at the strategic level, laying out this document but just talking about the different ways of how to support the future force. And I think the biggest challenge in supporting a future force is it's a blend. It's a blend of old and new. And that's what I call second industrial revolution, military formations, and fourth industrial revolutions. You know, the second is, you know, tanks and aircraft and big gas guzzlers, but throwing a lot of lead down range. I mean, that's, that's the, the, in order to generate effects, you know, in that second industrial revolution, you really have to throw a lot of mobility and mass at the problem. Whereas I think in a fourth industrial revolution fight, especially with unmanned platforms, you know, the space and cyber domains, you know, that there's going to be different aspects and different way of war fighting that'll incorporate both of those. But at the end of the day, what do logisticians have to do? You've got to support the old one. 
the medium one, and then, you know, the future force and everything in between. And I'll, I'll be honest, it's really hard, at least for me, to get my head around the complexity of the future battlefield, because we're going from a three-domain fight, you know, sea, air, land, sea had a very important subsea component, of course, but then with space and cyber. Because the thing that we had, and nothing you don't know, but in World War II and, and other conflicts is we are literally, I think the, the term we've come up with is a continental sanctuary in the United States. I mean, because we're always beyond reach of the enemy. Of course, we've been attacked with tragic results you know, on 9-11. But overall, you know, we've, we have been buffered, you know, from the kind of pounding that, you know, Japan and Germany took in World War II and other countries that we've been at war with. And I think in a future fight, we can no longer make that assumption. But I believe that, you know, especially in the cyber realm, uh, you know, if you look at how you literally could shut the, turn the lights off, uh, sewage treatment plants, you know, all types of uh, economic infrastructure, you know, that'll be very vulnerable to cyber. And we're gonna have to learn how to fight through that. Because again, in World War II, factories unhindered were generating tons of mass. I mean, you know, 303,000 aircraft, you know, 2.4 million vehicles. I mean, we're just, we're gearing up the, that second industrial revolution machine and it's all working. Well, in the future, we might not have that ability. And plus, with the new weapon systems that we have, I, I call them exquisite, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, there are just some incredible platforms out there, F-35 being an incredibly killing machine. But the problem is with exquisite platforms comes exquisite, at times, maintenance, supply, supply web. And we're going to have to think through, okay, with these very high-end systems that perhaps are not as, are a little bit more sensitive and not as durable as, you know, the old two and a half ton truck or, you know, literally an old Stewart tank. I'm really, Dave, I wasn't that old. I was never on those. But just <laughs> kind of th thinking through how we're going to support both old and new capabilities at the same time. So that was a long preamble and answer to a short question. But back to you. No, that, that's great, sir. Um, I think, you know, speaking of uh, geography uh, of warfare, uh, I think the accidental superpower is a good, really good read for our listeners to to dive into that talks about the the concept of how geography has influenced growth of of civilizations and in, in different yeah. you know different parts of the you know whether it's the roman empire um the yeah. you know the german states and, and now the united states so yeah. i just wanted to plug that there i'm sure you've read yeah. it but no that one i have but another one that's kind of predates that uh, I can't remember the author, but it's the role of the American frontier in, you know, in America in the West. I think it's DeSoto. I'm not sure. It, again, I'm getting old, 62. But that book just talks about how, as a nation, we're always looking you know, over the next hill, you know, over the next horizon. You know, and, then, and then when the expansion you know, is completed in the West in the late 1800s, then we start looking overseas. And it's, and it's how it impacts our psyche. You know, so we're always looking to expand and explore or explore and expand so mm -hmm. that's a great book good rack now speaking of history and hindsight i i would like to to talk a little bit about the american way of war just just for a minute here because we mentioned that you know the second industrial revolution and, and you're ta also talking about you know the fourth industrial revolution can you talk about what is threaded in our dna when it comes to logistics and rapid mobility you know, even if you want to even start back to the Civil War, right, and, and onward. Yeah, I think, you know, and I've, I've given this pitch, and I'll, I'll just kind of walk through, you know, mentally, 
you know, some of the things I've talked about in the past on this topic is we're, we've always been good at strategic mobility and getting from point A to point B. Uh, and again, if you look at the Civil War, there's this Corps, it's called the 23rd Corps. Uh, it's fighting in Tennessee. And then literally within 19 days, this is 15,000 soldiers and all their kit and all their gear. That gets moved all the way around for an amphibious, then of that day, amphibious assault on Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, think about that. That's before the interstate highway system, before we had C-5s and C-17s. I mean, we're moving that many people, and we've always been that good at it. Same thing happens in World War One, you know, because unrestricted submarine warfare. We enter World War One. Germans think it's going to take us two years to move a million men. We actually move a million the first year and two million by Armistice Day. So we're really good at projecting mass, and it's that mass conscript army, you know, which I think, by the way, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead here. Is I am not sure that the current all volunteer military is the model of the future. And I say that because I, I, I'm not saying go back to World War I, World War II, everybody gets drafted, you know, and that's, it's a, the whole nation's mobilized that way, though I think you could make an argument for that. But I think in the future, what we would look for is people like you specifically and others that are incredibly smart, either on cyber, space operations, um, any type of uh, technology that's going to advance lethality and mobility for us. And that you literally say to this person, he or she, hey, we're going to, you're going to come into the United States Air Force for two years. And we're directing you to come, by the way. But we're really going to pay you well, okay? Because we're going to pay you what you would be making on the outside in your starter position. And then after you do your two, three years in, you know, either Space Force or, you know, any of these new emerging fields, then we're going to help you get a job, which we do that already, you know, through various programs. But I just think that 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 model of, you know, the conscript army, there, there was value to that back then. But I think we need a more selective conscript to be able to wage war with the complex systems that we have. You know, because when you go to that five domain fight that we have, I, I, what I'm concerned about, I'm saying this as a Marine, I think the decisive domains are going to be space and cyber. I mean, the Chinese aren't launching missiles at the cyclic right because, you know, they're trying to replicate what NASA did. I mean, they're looking literally at the new high ground and saying, OK, how can we achieve competitive advantage in this domain? And, it, and if they're knocking down our satellites, if they're blinding us, you know, we're going to need to be able to regenerate that capability, you know, either at a lower altitude or higher altitude. But we're going to need that capability because everything we do today is so focused on command and control. You know, and it's the you know, C5 ISRT and all these capabilities because that's how you generate effects. Because in the old days, you generate effects by just throwing a lot of lead at it. Today, I think you can generate effects multiple different ways in all different domains. And then the, the simultaneity of that um, effects generation what could literally either overwhelm the enemy or us, okay, or you know, create delays and degradation in our capability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially looking at the PLA strategy of uh, systems destruction warfare, right? And, you know, it, not all of that is kinetic. <laughs> I mean, right. it's, you know, it, most of that is driven by, uh, you know, through the cyber domain, through the space domain. Um, and I was talking with David Maxwell a few weeks ago, and, and we, uh, we discussed unrestricted warfare and yeah, how that's such an important text to dive into. Yeah. Uh, while that might not deliberately be 
uh, the PLA's doctrine per se by definition. It certainly influenced thought, uh, yes. and it's a an outstanding playbook. Even even though it's a couple of decades old now, but hey, the art yeah. of war is hundreds of years old and it's still relevant. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I would like to reemphasize that um, you know to our listeners is uh, something to learn from that it it is going to be more than we get. Like so, let me let me take it from this angle here. And I think we see this in wargaming as well, where uh, certain warfighters, depending on your MOS or AFSC, uh, become biased in in their domain of conflict, right? Um, so if you have a grunt that is uh, that is in a war game, right, whether it's an E5 or even a young captain who might be a like an O three O two, might double down on on the land domain. A pilot yeah. might emphasize the air domain uh and and so on and so forth because i think we 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 favor uh you know we favor that where we need to holistically in that cognitive domain be able to uh understand and and articulate all of these different types of threats uh and and every and like we can get hit by in every at every angle and actually i might be getting ahead of myself here um because my my next question is um what you think the um, you know, can you paint a picture of of the f- future fight or what you believe the future fight's going to look like? But I'm getting attacked on my cell phone, right? I mean, right. like yeah. it, it, it's coming from everywhere. It's not it's not yeah. just on the battlefield. But I'll I'll hand it back over yeah. to you and and to paint that picture for us. Yeah, lot to unpack there, but I would say that if you look at multi-domain, I mean, these are all the buzzwords, right? But there's there's actually substance to these in a multi-domain, five-domain fight. I think as you look at it, you need to look at it in a temporal way because certain domains at certain times will be more important than others. But I think the consistent thing is, you know, the most important warfighting dimension is the human dimension and specifically the human mind. And where I'm concerned is the current uh, Byzantine's too strong words. I'll start, you know, I'll have to buy beer for my friends in the Pentagon. I don't, it's not Byzantine because, you know, the staff's got a lot of great people. There's a lot of smart folks at every level and different staffs. But it's almost designed in a 1960s second industrial revolution way. It's kind of like when I went to, you know, Catholic school, you know, the nuns like, hey, you're going to memorize this. There's, you know, there's no critical thinking. Just, you know, read this. And that does have some value, but it doesn't prepare you for a very dynamic multi-domain fight. Because you need to be able to think at different levels at different times, and you need to be able to leverage, have an understanding of all the tools that you can leverage to create effects at the end of the day. And I just think that, that there may be promise here. I might be overstating it, uh, but if you look at machine learning and artificial intelligence, and, and again, that's the new hey, AI ML. You know, any any problem uh, AI ML. No. But it, but if you look at it through the lens of okay, what am I trying to achieve? Cognitive overmatch against my enemy, right? That's what you're trying to achieve. So with cognitive overmatch, every human being, there's, um, oh, no, I can't remember the name of it. Something's brain in the fighter pilot. Mozart's, Mozart's brain in the fighter pilot, which is a great book. And it talks about how every human being, you know, especially me at 62, has a certain cognitive load. Like over a certain amount of information, I just can't handle any more information. I can't process it quickly enough. No matter how many New York Times puzzles you do, how many books you read to make your cognitive performance better, you're just not going to get there. So how do you enhance cognitive processing? 
One way that I think is a dangerous way is through biology, you know, which, you know, the Chinese are looking at ways to do that, right? To improve cognitive cap and physical capability through biology. So, but the other one I, I want to focus on is really if you had, if you teamed with machines and literally look at uh, Kasparov's uh, book, Deep Thinking, you know, he's really mad that he, you know, loses uh, to IBM's Deep Blue. And he's like, hey, they cheated, you know, the computer was rigged. But it's really, when he learns that it's not, he kind of goes, hmm, I'm really good. The machine's really good. But if the machine and I team together, we're pretty much going to be unstoppable. And that's where I'm going with future warfare is I think if we could find AI ML tools that, for lack of a better term, were ergonomic, right, that, that fit well with human beings and literally with specific commanders, because every commander's kind of got a different way of doing things, their own that recognitional decision base, recognitional decision making foundation, you know, over 30, 40 years of, of experience, like somebody like General Neller, 44 years. I mean, you, you learn a lot in that amount of time, and you can really apply it. But how do you tailor that and integrate it with the machine? And the thought experiment that we would always talk about when I was in the Marine Corps was if you took, you know, and I, you always got to talk about a dead German general, you know, but um, there was a German general panzer commander, and the name will pop in my head in a second. But he was on the Eastern Front, and he's the only one in Stalingrad that actually did well, right? And he was outnumbered by a Russian corps, like 20 to 1. And when they interviewed him after the war, they go, you know, how did you know how to, you know, do the things that you did? And he just said, well, I had an intuitive, you know, the, I'm going to kill, I don't speak French, but who do we? In other words, an eye for the battle, an eye for the conflict. He had that. So if you took a guy like that and matched him up with a machine, I mean, I you, know, you go from having a you know an all team all star player to you know something that's even more capable, and I think we would have to. And I'm I'm throwing a lot at this, but I think not only the machine integration with how we do decision making, but the education and training of people in uniform to understand how to best utilize those tools, and then have a working knowledge of all the different ways that we generate lethality and how we influence the cognitive process of the enemy, right? Because I think there's some misperceptions about the Chinese and I, I am not an expert. I mean, I spent two years of my life really working it hard. I'm a little bit dated, but I would just say they're incredibly industrious people. Uh, you go to a place like Shanghai, you think, and I'm an old guy, but you think you're in New York City in 1970, a lot going on, I mean, a lot of energy there. And you look at their accomplishments in terms of where they've taken, you know, growing their middle class, the amount of infrastructure development. Now, the flip side is it could all be a Potemkin village. I'm mixing metaphors here. And, you know, the whole thing might fall apart. But I do think there's some there there to their capabilities. So to sit there and go, well, their military doesn't have combat experience. You know, they don't, they don't think maneuver warfare like we do. You know what? They're good students. And I think that's the main, to end this part of it, I'd say that my main point would be they are fantastic imitators. And people criticize them for taking our stuff, copying it, and making it better. Well, if we if that was happening inside the United States, that would be called iteration and product development, right? Because you're taking something that's pretty good, you're iterating, making it even better. And if you're making it better, that reflects skill on your part. So I think we we kind of look at that, well, they're cheating. No, they're we do the same thing, right? If, if they have a capability, hey, that's that's a great idea. That's a great platform. We'll take that and make it better. And I think that's one of their strong suits. Mm -hmm. That was another long answer to a short question. That's how we got the space, right?
you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. You're from the Germans. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there's a few things that, that I want to address um, going back to, I think, a recurring theme with some with subject matter experts. Doesn't matter um, if they're a civilian or military person. Um, it's the human dimension is always mentioned and the emphasis of the human dimension. And I, and I brought this up a few times in, in other conversations, but um, when we look at the Air Force as an air power entity, uh, and then even the Navy as well, uh, you know, we double down and focus on the, the technical dimension, if that's even a thing. Uh, but we focus on the technicalities um, of conflict uh, where you have the Army, uh, you have, have the Marine Corps, which, uh, you know, the Marine and the soldier is the weapon system. So naturally, you're going to lean into that, uh, that human dimension of warfare. Um, but as that that connects to, you know, maneuver warfare concepts, and I got my copy of MCPD one, uh, you know, on, on my on my shelf here. And I think that's, that's a progression that that the Air Force is, is trying to transition to. Uh, if you look at uh, AFDP one, which in my opinion is a shorter version of MCPD one. It's like it's like sixteen pages, uh, and trying to make it easy to digest and understand, yeah. and to inculcate mission command and those maneuver warfare concepts into what we do um, as an air power entity. Um, as we look at what a future conflict might look like, you know, we have as you said, you know, all the buzzwords, right? AI, ML, we have autonomous vehicles that we're developing. We have, you know, you know whether it's um, biologically enhanced human beings on the battlefield, yeah. as, as you were alluding to. There are so many elements that are different now than they were then. But then there's going to be that, that fundamental, uh, that, that core uh, of conflict, which which is that that human domain, and and when we execute agile combat employment, and we are isolated and we are cut off because naturally, our you know our our command and control, our communications are going to be severed, and and we're going to have uh, airmen, soldiers, marines, sailors on the ground that are going to be without that direction, and that's where that maneuver warfare. Uh, perspective and doctrine and, and embracing mission command uh, and commander's intent uh, is going to pay dividends. Um, but we cannot continue to subordinate decisions to the health of aircraft. We need to subordinate decisions to the health of that airman, to that Marine, and to that soldier. And, and, and really think about how we, we interject into our adversary's cognitive domain, right? And then do that without the fancy tools and equipment, um, but do that because we are uh, we are equipped with an understanding of the strategic perspective and how uh, we you know we can execute you know independently on the battlefield. Those are just my thoughts on that. Oh, that, that, again, there's a lot there, and that, those were great comments. I just go, I'll go back to the, you know the maneuver warfare statement, and, and this is a matter of record. But you know when General Gray was the Second Marine Division Commander. Uh, he came in, and the first thing he did is he made sure that every lieutenant and company grade and NCOs and staff NCOs had books. And, you know, when I first went to Second Tank Battalion, I said the Vietnam guys were fantastic. I mean, they were just such wonderful, motivating leaders. But 
if you said you read a book, people kind of look at you sideways and said, you're doing what? You're reading a book? <laughs> and General Gray, he changed that mindset for the Marine Corps. And it was very much grounded in maneuver warfare. And then when we used to go to Fort Pickett, and when I was a tanker, they would do hot washes, and he's a division commander. He would take the, the briefs on what occurred you know, during the exercise or that day. And I'll never forget, he... he there's probably 600 people in the auditorium, right? I mean, five, 600. I mean, he just got everybody there, all the leadership. And he said, Sergeant Williams, tell me your regimental commander's commander's intent for this exercise. And the poor sergeant's like, Sergeant does not know, but the sergeant will find out. And, and then he goes up the chain. When he gets to literally the battalion commander, the battalion commander's got it, right? The company commander's not so much. But he did that. His point was that you really have to, you got to believe it, right? You have to believe that, hey, if you're given commander's intent and access to the tools, again, I always say lethality, mobility tools, logistics tools, you'll be able to execute in the absence of orders. But I think that the thing with maneuver warfare today is that there's, there's always that friction between hey, I'm going to have exquisite communications and I'm going to be able to literally see everything. Don't worry, we got to worry about the overload of all the information, but that ability to really command and control all the way down the point and think, think Vietnam, you know, the commander in the helicopter, you know, telling the folks on the ground what to do. And I just think that to maximize the tools that we have today, you're going to, you're going to need, I mean, it's maneuver warfare, but you're not, you're really getting input from the pointy end on a, a a gap or an area that you can exploit, but the rest of the machine behind that has got to be able to really gear up quick to provide the reinforcement that you need, either logistics, fires, whatever it is. And I think that the model would be is that from the Stingray teams in Vietnam, you can Google Stingray teams, but if I've got it right, you know, they're like force reconnaissance teams on steroids that had access, you know, to naval gunfire, to aviation fires, to artillery, Small teams inserted could see NVA uh, or you know via column formations and then you know calling those fires and the only thing that bad was back then lose comms it's a bad day for the team you know because they're greatly outnumbered and I, but I just think that principle of small teams in a dispersed environment generating effects again through the access to all the different fires across the you know the, the continuum you'll be able to it's it's maneuver warfare but it's Discipline maneuver warfare, right? Because, mm -hmm. and, and I say that knowing that you always can't predict or forecast what's going to happen on the pointy end, right? Because something catastrophic, you know, can kind of throw the whole plan off. But I point to this is I just think there's always a, a friction between, you know, maneuver warfare and then the old style Soviet, you know, everybody's going to do exactly, you know, what I say and the battle will unfold like this. And, you know, between the two, where are you? But I do think teaching mission command, you know, the army term, or, you know, maneuver warfare for the young ones is perfect and, and makes sense. It's just, it, if you look at the threat environment, you're going to need a little bit of both, a little bit of centralization and a little bit of decentralization across the, you know, the functions of warfare. Mm -hmm. so. I think uh, Max Boot in War Made New talks about having an efficient bureaucracy. And yeah. that's the trick because you're going to need a, you're going to need that hierarchy. Uh, you're going to need that a little bit of that structure. Um, but how do we how do we optimize that? Uh, how do yeah. we um, uh, how do we still uh, seek the uh, or 
or uh, take the benefits of having that that bureaucratic system, which has that stability and that predictability, and and has that uh, that chain of command, while also having and uh, and respecting the the vast amount of free flowing information and uh, and being able to respond to the the ever changing battle space. And Matt, my concern is that, and you you alluded to this earlier, is that if you look at the Prussian French model, right, of the, the what I call the, for lack of a better term, the the functional linear staff. Okay, it, it's designed to get the troops and the trains to run on time. <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean that's the genesis of it, and it does it very well uh, in terms of movement. Maybe not outcome, think the Schlieffen plan, right? But as you as you look to the future, it's like, okay, we, and this, another sacred cow, it's easy for me to say this, but I, I was at Southcom for the Haiti earthquake relief. And what they had done there is they had transitioned to staff. And it's like, you know, I forgot the guy, I think it was Stavris was the commander who was absolutely brilliant. His book, 2034, with Elliot Ackerman, very good. But I think he was trying to forecast and create a staff more for 21st century warfare. You know, and, and to get away from that very linear stovepipe and kind of create to optimize it, you know, through power combinations of different staff sections. I think where that falls short, I mean, I think it's a great idea, but the thing is that, that staff's got to plug into a higher joint staff, and then it's got to plug into its components and everybody, you know, everybody lateral, higher, and uh, support might not be the right word, but all levels. And if your machine is configured one way as a staff, and it doesn't plug into the rest of the machine, then it's sub-optimized. That's a nice word for its chaos because nobody knows who to literally call. I think that that will, what I think is needed is, you know, we had Goldwater Nichols to create the joint force, but I think we need another Goldwater Nichols to kind of go, do we have the design right? I mean, is there a better way to, to, to train, organize for battle than the system that we have? Because as we all lived, it's there's really smart people and great people there. But what happens is you take really smart, great people and put them in billets that really don't have a lot of impact or really kind of malpositioned or outdated. You generate a lot of work, you know, instead of having a, a very lean staff that can really fight that future battle. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I was listening to a podcast from War on the Rocks, and I forgot who the guest was. Um, and they were talking about how we need the next Goldwater Nichols Act um, equivalent, right? Because we're long yeah. overdue, um, yeah. you know, and especially as we look at how the landscape has uh, the landscape has changed when it comes to the the roots of innovation, right? When we're looking at, okay. you know, we in the government essentially owned innovation, like eighty percent of of you know technical and uh, technical growth uh, or innovations came from. The government that came from the military, yeah. right? Um, and now it's flipped upside down. Um, now, how how do we, uh, you know, how do we optimize that? How do we how do we tap into those resources and not from a, a Chinese civil military fusion standpoint? And, right. and how do we how do we discover um, the true potential of um, you know of all of our levers of power uh, in in the twenty first century? Uh, so yeah, we're long overdue for that. Yeah. And then, you know, related to that is your, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. I mean, there's NSIN, there's DIU. I mean, there's a lot of smart, creative people out there, you know, coming up with new initiatives and ideas. 
you know, but every everybody rants and raves about you know the you know what I call the Robert Strange McNamara PBE system, you know, which worked, I guess, okay for Ford, but you know, not the best model, you know, for current capability development. So it's easy to always to criticize that system, but I would just say that, and I've met very few because they're almost like the key maker in Matrix. You know, they're a unicorn. There's just not a lot of them. But there's certain people that understand, I think Roper's, Hondo Gertz and Will Roper are two of them, that understand how to make, even though it's slow, even though it's bureaucratic, even though it's frustrating, they know how to make that system move. Now, it doesn't move fast, but it moves and it actually creates product at the end of the day. So my point to this is, I think if we spent less time criticizing that system and just finding the key makers, <laughs> right, that can make it work. There's a way to get money. There's a way to, and, and again, it's a very bureaucratic and uh, process layered system. I just think there's folks that understand that kind of how to turn the right dials to get to you, get you where you need to go. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing is that, in my opinion, we tend to create wonderful high end systems. I mean, going back, I was an M60A1 tanker when the M1 first came out. So if you look at the M1, you look at the F-35, I mean, you look at our aircraft carriers. I mean, these are the model mechanical, just optimization and just fantastic platforms. Don't talk about vulnerability, but they're great platforms. But I think now as we're looking at the future war, there might be other systems, especially in the unmanned realm, which I think that's the future. You know, I think manned aviation, I mean, you're always going to, I think, have manned to a degree aviation, but, you know, man, excuse me, lead follower or, you know, Manned aircraft, unmanned aircraft times two. These are the new systems that for less money will provide just as much, if not more, punch. I mean, they're not the end all, but just, you know, like if you watch the Super Bowl and you watch the thousands, of, not thousands, that's an exaggeration, hundreds of drones flying around. I mean, that, think about the lethality you could generate in a littoral environment if you literally had unmanned vessels that you're not really, and they could be wooden, you don't care if you lose it. And they have hundreds of drones. And you can launch those drones and they're either a seer or a shooter or a log carrier or a relay. I mean, they have all, all this potential. I think, you know, if you remember the movie, uh, and I'm dating myself, you wouldn't have seen this movie, The Graduate, you know, but Dustin Hoffman, it's plastics, it's plastics. I mean, that's the future. I would just think, I think the future, especially in logistics realm, is going to be on the unmanned side and, and for, and for uh, lethal effects. So I just think those platforms, and I'm not saying the Ukraine model is a deed model, completely for the future, but we're seeing it's kind of insight. It's like it's like in the Civil War at the very, very end when you're seeing the Gatling gun and kind of going, I'm like, there's some potential on that. I'm not sure how. It's the same thing here. You're looking at unmanned going, there, there's a lot of there there potentially in the future. Over to you. Sorry. No, no, it does great. Mm -hmm. I think we saw the roots of that even before the conflict in Ukraine, but in Azerbaijan, right? Yes, you know, looking right. at yeah. the, the utilization of, of unmanned uh, vehicles. And, and then now, I think it's incredible. You know, you just scroll through, you know, Instagram, and you see all this footage from, you know, uh, from the front. Yes. And there's, I saw this shot of, or, or the screen capture of a drone, little guy, flew right over a tank, Dropped a grenade, boom! Yeah, right. That's incredible. Yeah. And the drone got caught up in the explosion, and it so essentially it self destructed. But that tank cost a lot more yes. than that tiny little drone 
Yes. And I, I think it's, and then you, you, you touched on using unmanned vehicles for sustainment, right? I mean, I think that's, yeah. uh, that's also something that, uh, you know, I'm sure in the, in the corners of the Pentagon is being, is being discussed. And, um, but it's just interesting to see how all that kind of plays out and comes to, comes to fruition. Yeah. You know, one thing, uh, you, John Miller, General Berger, both in your comments before, but it, you know, you said this before. But at the end of the day, what matters most, I'm talking Marine Corps, is that individual Marine at the very pointy end. And you, and you literally, you reverse engineer everything to make him the most lethal and capable warfighting entity possible. So that's from the weapon he's carrying, the communications that he has, to the light, to the sappy plate light as possible, to the batteries as small as possible and long lasting, because it's the... I saw you're a Patriots fan. No offense, but I'm a Bills fan. But you know, but Belichick, you know, so it's the game of inches. And I just think there's a lot of little things that you in that reverse engineering of outfitting, man training, equip a Marine at the pointy end, that that gets lost, you know, because there's the intangibles or really intangibles of, you know, we make Marines, they're motivated, they'll take any hill, and we're giving them the best rifle, the best ammo, the best batteries, the best comms. And that way, you know, at the very pointy end, you're you're optimized. I mean, you're you're a killing machine at the pointy end. That everything you make left of boom, it's tailored to support not only the marine, but obviously the different formations as quickly as possible. And I think you know that a lot of people get wrapped around, oh, you know, we lost this system, we don't have this anymore. But you've got the individual marine, and then you're creating, for lack of a better term, to me, alignment and symmetry of all the different capabilities that are in support of that Marine, either on his body or from a phone, from a you know radio call or a data call, so to speak, that, hey, you know, I need this effect here, help me out, you know, mm-hmm. food for thought. Yeah, and, and I think uh, Mars Syscom is doing a fantastic job of, of equipping, you know, the individual Marine. Yeah. Um, but I also, uh, I think the, the commandant's reading list is makes Marines just as lethal, right? Um, yeah, right. in its own way, and and uh, you know, and encourage everybody to to look at that reading list and and look at your respective service chiefs' reading list, and because uh, it's there for a reason, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. It's there to make you a more lethal asset, uh, and so you can dominate your cognitive domain. You know, in related to that, one thing that it's just a it's irritating to me is in the, in my work and my life outside, you know, the Marine Corps, you know, people always want to talk to the general, right? Well, talk to the general. And to me, it's like, hey, talk to the corporal. Hey, talk to the sergeant. I mean, because if you, if you, and this is what we did, not my idea, it was the team's idea. When I was in installation logistics, the team said, okay, hey, let's get all the young ones across the Marine Corps together for an innovation symposium. When we did that out in California. And the, the ideas that they come up with, you know, because the, the bad, here's the good news. Not really good news. Good news is I did 37 years in the Marine Corps. It's good news for me because I really enjoyed it. You know, the bad news is, though, I did 37 years in the Marine Corps. What I mean by that is I'm, no matter what, going to have certain baked-in ideas that I'm not going to let go, right? Even if I try to be as innovative and flexible as possible, it's going to be like, hey, I saw that six times before, so that's not going to work. And what the young corporals and sergeants would tell me is, hey, didn't work six or seven times before, but the conditions weren't right. It's going to work today, and here's why. I mean, that's why you need anytime. I think with an innovation group, you need different kinds of people, different age, gender, ethnicity, background, 
Because if you have a bunch of guys that look like me, you're going to get kind of this kind of answer, where if you bring together very diverse, what I call crazy, and I mean this in a good way, crazy thinkers, the young ones will go, they'll come up with things. You sit there and go, how did, how did they figure that out? I think we need to do more of that. And I love how you bring that up because that's exactly what Tesseract is getting after is because, yeah. I mean, I told you, I, I came onto the staff as an E3 um, and then we've had every rank represented from E3 all the way up to 05 uh, to bring together those perspectives and to connect with the field level. What, uh, so we've talked a lot about the, you know, future warfare. We've talked about everything from AI autonomous vehicles uh we've talked about but most importantly we've talked about the human dimension of war and and what the joint force can do to equip themselves and you know at, and and so much more what has come to mind throughout this podcast that you would like to end with here and and what would you like to leave the audience with yeah what i'd like to touch on is you know general burger's force design 2030 initiative. Uh, I, I firmly believe he's got more right than wrong. Uh, I mean, I think there's some really good ideas in that. But I think some of the concern is that, you know, if I, you know, those that are critical of it, I respect their opinion. They, these are war fighters of tons of experience, brilliant men. Uh, but I would say that look at how we're going to generate effects on the future battlefield. And, you know, in a, if you were a, you know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and for that matter, you know, in Afghanistan, Iraq, you're, again, you're throwing a lot of lead at the problem. I mean, there's a lot of mass, and that's that's how you're creating those effects. But look at it, you know, and I'm, I'm always going to be grounded in reality, but look at a future battlefield where there's other ways to leverage effects across the weapons spectrum, okay, from kinetic to non-kinetic, I mean, the entire spectrum. And again, it's that power of combinations. Is there, are there, excuse me, ways to combine those that generate orders of magnitude greater impact on the battlefield? You know, and again, at the end of the day, it's, it's always that battle between a lot of mass, a lot of weight, survivability, to lighter, faster, more nimble, responsive, and you can you project fires quickly. So there's always that rub. But I just think that, you know, through experimentation, you know, the, the uh, folks in Quantico are, you know, doing their best to say, okay, this was the concept that the commandant laid out. Let's fine tune it. I think it needs some fine tuning. I think on the logistics side, you know, it's, we really need to think it through because uh, again, it's a blend of old and new. But I would say that don't get so fixated on the platform, one platform, if it happens to have been, and I'm a tanker, so it's, those went away. So it's like, that's the end of that, my MOS for me. But more think more about okay how can i better combine new capabilities with old to generate the effects and i understand it's a physics problem at the end of the day to a large degree i mean you need x amount of aircraft you know rotor wing fixed wing you know from from marine corps to air force to you know transcom all everything in between to project power i'm just recommending that you know spend more time thinking about the solutions and how we can best tinker tailor that force to get the optimal effect that you're trying to achieve. So again, you know, don't like the, some folks don't like the fact that tanks get left, got it, but hey, if you look at the modern battlefield, how can we make this work? And I'll throw this out. Let's say if you're looking for a new armored reconnaissance vehicle, right? Okay, make one man, whatever company you go with, make one man 
makes six unmanned four, right? And there's, there's other ways to create reconnaissance, fires, um, you know, mobility. There's different ways to, to put it together. And I think if we spent more time thinking about that, it would be helpful to the Marine Corps. General Dana, thank you so much yeah. for coming on and, and sharing your insights and, and your perspective. And uh, I think that our Air Force audience here uh, has, you know, so much to learn, you know, from the force design effort. I've talked about force design 2030 and many podcasts, just because I think it's they're the old accelerate change or lose and force design 2030, I believe are the only two really overt change management at, at the organizational level uh, initiatives going on uh, within the DOD. Um, and I think it helps that General Brown and, and General Berger are on the same page. Um, but it, it, it's cool to see both of our branches growing almost congruently in ways that they never have before. Um, because yeah. when you think of the Air Force and the Marine Corps, uh, you think of you think of black, you think of white, you think of like right. opposites, um, yeah. which they are in many different many ways. Um, but I think uh, we are converging in in thought of how uh, we need to execute uh, the you know the future fight. Well, Matt, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Uh, loved hearing about your grandfather. And again, I love your library <laughs> and everything you got. And uh, I look forward to continued discussion with you. So thanks a lot. Appreciate Thank you, it. Sir. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.